As happy as a butter clam When tides are high I sing A grateful ode to Puget Sound The land of everything I love it from Tulalip To Puyallup, Squim and Pisht And to the Dosey Wallops Where so many times I fished From Brennan to the Boca Chile, From Lummi to La Push and from the lordly sawduck to lovely duckabush, from Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine, the climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for listening to episode 20 Territorial Politician Benjamin F. Kendall, Part 1 Benjamin Franklin Kendall, a man of good physique, aristocratic in his feelings, bitter in his prejudices, and discreet in his utterances. He was 34 years old when young Horace Howe gunned him down in the back office of the Olympia Overland Press on the 7th of January, 1863. Two days later, at the 10th session of the Territorial Legislative Assembly, the representative from Clallam and Jefferson Counties, John D. Bagley, introduced a resolution honoring the late B.F. Kendall, whose many virtues as a man are deserving remembrance, whose culture of mind was worthy of imitation, whose energy of character has left its imprint upon the territory. The following day, Saturday, January 10th, the tight-lipped Howe, who had willingly given himself up to the sheriff, was brought to the courthouse for the inquest. Only then was it realized the nature of the imprint Kendall had bequeathed upon the territory. In a dramatic move, Howe's attorneys, Frank Clark and Judge O.B. McFadden, said that their client was ready to stand trial and there was therefore no need to continue the hearing. They were overruled, though, and Clark was put on the stand with the testimony following substantial rumors that Howe was but a tool in the hands of designing men. The designing men were never named. Highly suspect were such distinguished public figures as Anson Henry, Surveyor General for the Territory, Elwood Evans, leading Republican and hopeful governor, John Miller Murphy, publisher of the Washington Standard, and Frank Clark himself, Horace Howe's attorney who was a prominent Democrat. Howe's silence, coupled with the political strength of his supporters, successfully terminated the first great murder scandal in the Washington Territory. Today, and possibly for all time, the identity of those who goaded Howe into killing Kendall remains a mystery. Quite apart from the political intrigue and violence of the episode, it continues to be interesting because of its principal actor. Kendall had suspected and apparently welcomed his fate, possibly with himself in mind, he wrote, only a month before he was shot, Lincoln escaped assassination at Baltimore by means of a long cloak. Gentlemen in this territory cannot escape it so easy. Although he displayed almost suicidal moral courage, there were other evidences of the individual's extreme cautiousness. Enigmatic as his colorful personality was, his career was even more colorful. A member of Governor Isaac I. Stevens' railway survey party, he was the territorial legislature's first clerk, the first territorial librarian, the first, and possibly only, Union spy from the territory, a leading attorney, territorial Indian supervisor, and finally, the controversial editor of the Overland Press. 
If Kendall's ghost gave the political leaders of the day some uncomfortable moments, there is evidence that, while he was alive, his sardonic scowl, bulldog voice, bloodshot eyes, and scarecrow body caused considerable unrest. Even his few friends had difficulty explaining his apparent rudeness and severity of bearing, but for the most part they excused him because of his early troubles and turbulent childhood. Born in 1829, the son of a Bethel, Maine farmer, he lived in the quiet New England village until he was 23 years old. Apparently his family gave him little assistance or encouragement. After he was graduated from common school, he was put to work plowing the fields of his father's farm. He quickly rebelled, declaring that he meant to go to college. He saved most of the money he earned from teaching school and worked on neighboring farms, but in the process he seems to have developed a sour and harsh viewpoint. Regardless of his philosophy, he proved an exceptional student. He was graduated with honors from Bowdoin College and had little difficulty in securing a position as clerk in the survey land office in Washington, D.C., Although he was there less than a year, he made an excellent impression upon his superiors, particularly Nathan Clifford, who, early in 1853, described his young friend in a letter to President Franklin Pierce as a gentleman of fine talents and irreproachable moral character. Clifford's letter was in the form of a recommendation. Kendall was seeking an appointment as the secretary for the newly formed Territory of Washington. Kendall did not receive the appointment and, since he saw little opportunity for advancement in Washington, D.C., he decided to accept a position as one of the six $25 a month aides to Governor Isaac Stevens. On the 12th of June, 1853, he joined the Stevens party at St. Paul. Acting as a scout and the governor's personal secretary, Kendall made the hazardous overland trip without incident. He arrived in Olympia on the 25th of November, 1853, and immediately assumed an active role in the new territorial government, possibly with the assistance of Governor Stevens. On the 27th of February, 1854, Kendall was unanimously elected chief clerk of the House of Representatives. The first political skirmish that Kendall figured in occurred two months later on the 17th of April, 1854, when he was challenged by Frank Clark for the post of territorial librarian. At a joint session of the council and house, Kendall rallied 17 votes to Clark's nine. His victory did not improve relations with the man who nine years later was to figure so prominently in his murder. By education and experience, a proper choice for clerk, by inclination and excellent selection for librarian, Kendall held both jobs for two terms of the legislature. Following his active role in the martial law controversy, he chose to divorce himself completely from the Stevens-supported Olympia clique, which then controlled the legislature. He therefore declined to submit his name for re-election to either post. Kendall's government jobs were more honorary than lucrative, and he was faced with the problem of finding a means of support. Although his formal legal training was negligible, he applied for and gained admittance to the bar late in 1854. Kendall earned almost immediate success as an attorney, and in April of 1855, he was appointed acting U.S. District Attorney by Territorial Chief Justice Edward Lander. Kendall had been able to adapt himself to the troubles of frontier life and had been accepted by the majority of men in and out of politics, but a year after his appointment, he became involved in the territory's first great political schism. In May of 1856, the martial law controversy began, and as acting U.S. District Attorney, Kendall sided with Judge Lander against what he believed was the arbitrary action of Governor Stevens in declaring martial law and arresting the judge. 
joining with the majority of the territory's attorneys, including two of his later bitter foes, Elwood Evans and Frank Clark, Kendall was one of the principal leaders in the fight against Governor Stevens. His final break with the governor came in July when he prosecuted the case and won a conviction which resulted in a $50 fine against the territory's chief executive. Following the decision, Kendall demonstrated a characteristic which eventually would be instrumental in bringing about his murder, for he was one of those unfortunate attorneys who made their clients' quarrels their own, both as lawyers and private individuals. Not simply content with the decision against Governor Stevens, Kendall, aided by Elwood Evans, rounded up a mob to march on the governor's home, leading a large number of citizens to the front of the governor's dwelling, where the governor's wife and children were compelled to listen. He led them to suppose Stevens was to be cut and quartered by these gallant gentlemen. The crowd soon dispersed, but Kendall never forgot his grievance. Despite, or perhaps because of, his controversy with Governor Stevens, he was elected prosecuting attorney for the 2nd District in November of 1856. During the next four years, he displayed a unique facility for choosing the unpopular side, either as a government lawyer or while handling private cases. What is more important, during these years, he alienated the very men whom he had earlier joined against the governor. Kendall was appointed acting prosecuting attorney for the Territorial Supreme Court session of December 1857. In this capacity, he headed the prosecution of Chief Leshai for murder of non-combatants during the Treaty Wars. Once again, he was opposed by Frank Clark, who appeared for the defense. A year later, December of 1858, he successfully defended claims of the Puget Sound Agricultural Company against Thomas Dean. In defending the company, assisted by Judge Lander, he was at odds with the public opinion. Since the company claimed all the lands between the Puyallup and Nisqually rivers, from the Sound to the summit of the Cascades, its bitterest foes were the farmers who had settled much of the region. During these and other trials, Kendall was matched against Clark, Evans, and later William Wallace, either singly or as a trio. The opposing attorneys rarely won a case. Kendall proved that, as a controversial debater, he had no superiors at the bar. But though he was successful in court, he failed to divorce himself emotionally from client and case. He appears to have taken a combative and often vindictive attitude toward the opposing lawyers. This may account in part for Evans' biased judgment of him, a man who has no soul, who is as sordid as self can make him. Anson Henry, John M. Murphy, and Frank Clark later were to give convincing proof of their essential agreement with Evans. Making more enemies than friends, Kendall recognized that his chance for advancement would have to come from outside the territory. As early as 1854, he sent inquiries to Washington, D.C. regarding possible appointments. In 1860, he believed the time was advantageous to visit the other Washington, particularly since he had learned that the lucrative post of Superintendent of Indian Affairs for the territory would soon be open. Kendall arrived in the National Capitol early in March of 1861 and was present at the firing on Fort Sumter. Shortly thereafter, either by design or accident, he was introduced to General Winfield Scott. Proposing to nip the rebellion at the source of supply, he had planned to blockade the Atlantic and Gulf ports, but he was woefully uninformed as to the Confederacy's strength and needed information regarding their ability to withstand a blockade. 
At this juncture, Kendall volunteered his services as perhaps one of the first spies in the Union forces ever employed. Dressed as a civilian, he left Washington, D.C. in the latter part of April. He apparently had little difficulty, for by mid-May he returned from a reconnaissance of Richmond, Charleston, and New Orleans. Three brief impressions of the episode have been preserved. In 1862, Kendall wrote to a friend, I own to feeling did not mean to take a hand in the fight, though I have once staked my neck in the cause. At the conclusion of Kendall's mission, General Scott observed, He, Kendall, has executed a confidential mission for me of great danger and importance, which covered nearly all the seceded states, including Louisiana. A third report was less flattering. Regardless of his motives in undertaking the mission, Kendall received his reward. At the urging of General Winfield Scott, he was nominated for the position of Superintendent of Indian Affairs for Washington Territory. The United States Senate confirmed the nomination on the 17th of July, 1861, and shortly thereafter, Kendall sailed from New York for Olympia. Kendall's experiences during the following months illustrate vividly how the Territorial Republican Party spokesman engaged in a bitter struggle for political patronage. There is little question that the single quarrel, only one of many, tended to strengthen the Democratic Party and finally put its members in control of the territorial offices in 1863. Kendall was received in Olympia on the 14th of September with the firing of cannon and general rejoicing. Residents were not so pleased to welcome him as to share in the political patronage he now had at his disposal. As one editor noted, who wouldn't be the friend of a man who has anything to give him in these hard times? Kendall discovered many new so-called friends, but he had older, stronger enemies. During his absence, William Wallace had been elected Republican delegate to Congress, and Anson G. Henry, an influential Oregon Republican, had been appointed Surveyor General for the Territory. Lending active support to Wallace, Henry, Evans, and the Republican Party was the Washington Standard, an upstart newspaper that was founded by John Miller Murphy. As two of the leading territorial Republicans, Evans and Henry were particularly chagrined that they had not been given the opportunity to nominate the Superintendent of Indian Affairs. Although Henry did not arrive in Olympia until the 8th of September, 1861, Evans made the Republican position apparent as early as the 24th of August, 1861. He bitterly denounced Kendall as a Democrat and political adventurer who deserted his standard in defeat and joined the Republican Party after its triumph and, and, as the price of his apostasy, receives his office as his reward. On the 1st of September, Evans sent an urgent letter to Wallace in Washington, D.C., indicating how far he would go to discredit Kendall. I enclose you two Washington standards of August 24th and September 1st. The Northwest, established at Port Townsend, will follow suit on Wednesday next. I have received letters from nearly every section of the territory, and I pledge me bond as a man that from everyone comes the earnest remonstrance against such an outrage to Republicans as confirming this best position, most lucrative and most influential from its patronage, on Kendall. Had they any confidence in the man, were he bearable as a companion, much less a superior to subordinate officials, it would be different but to submit to indignities from an utter coward because bread and butter depend on it, I tell you Republicans will never submit to it. How was it accomplished, and how are we to be rid of it? 
That was probably the opinion of most disinterested parties regarding Kendall's appointment, which was expressed in the Puget Sound Herald. As an active supporter of Wallace's campaign and a friend of Evans, the Stillicum newspaper felt free to call itself impartial when, for once, it sided with a man running counter to the Republican Party and had this to say in an edition of their newspaper. We know that Mr. Kendall is eminently qualified. It has been too long the custom to fill offices with none but partisans of those in power. The most serious charge preferred against Kendall is that he is not a member of the party. The truth is he is not a party man at all. He never was and never could be one. He is of an independent turn of mind in politics. It was more than politics that motivated the attacks on Kendall, for as Evans had noted in his letter to Wallace, the man himself was not bearable. In less biased terms, he was a free-spoken, straightforward man on all occasions, and we believe that to this trait in his character is due the existing feeling against him. Possibly a more subtle reason, other than personality of political differences, for the dislike of Kendall by Evans, Clark, Henry, and Wallace, to name but four of his more outspoken critics, stemmed from the fact that Kendall was a New Englander. All four of his foes were born, educated, or brought up in the Middle Western states. Antagonism between the two groups, that being the Midwest farmers and New Englanders, often erupted into open resentment during the Civil War years. Kendall soon demonstrated his straightforwardness and lack of political acumen. Returning from an inspection of the Indian agencies in the eastern part of the territory, he announced in October of 1861 that he had dismissed James H. Wilbur from Fort Simcoe. Wilbur, a Methodist minister who was better known throughout Washington and Oregon than almost any other man, had been active in Oregon missions since 1846 and had been appointed superintendent of teaching at the Yakima Reservation in 1860. Kendall gave two reasons for the dismissal. First, he considered Wilbur's services an unnecessary expenditure. Second, and evidently more important, he saw in Wilbur a potential threat to his authority. His official stand was set forth in a report to the Commissioner of Indian Affairs. Among those removed was the Reverend James H. Wilbur. He had, on a former occasion, taken sides with Agent Lansdale in defying the authority of the superintendent when attempting to discharge his duty. He had usurped the authority of the agent and seemed determined that no employee should be allowed to continue on the reservation who entertained religious sentiments differing from those professed by himself. He had made it his frequent business to write the officials and citizens having no connection with the service, inviting their interference to further his own selfish schemes, some of which communications had come into my hands. Believing he would thwart the carrying out of my instructions incompatible with his views, I declined to allow him to remain on the reservation. Kendall had committed political suicide with this move. Viewing the dismissal of Wilbur as a direct attack on the church, the strong Oregon and Washington Methodist group joined sides with Elwood Evans and Anson Henry. On the 30th of October, 1861, Henry wrote to William Wallace, "'Kendall has most grossly offended the entire Christian community,' especially the Methodist Church, there will be an almost universal demand at his removal. He was not only refused every name I suggested to him for appointments to agency posts, but removed the very men I had urged him to retain. He insulted Bancroft in order to get Naismith's Mr. Barnhart in his place. He, Kendall, must be put out of the way or the Republican cause in this territory is permanently ruined. 
The Washington Standard saw in this episode Kendall's fixed determination to dispense with the services of all praying men. Kendall remained adamant, refusing to reinstate Wilbur or to take into consideration Henry's wishes regarding appointments. Support came from the Vancouver Chronicle in its 5th of November 1861 edition, which was later reprinted by the Puget Sound Herald a few months later in February of 1862. It read in part, The Reverend James H. Wilbur, an appointee of the last administration, his wife and nephew, received the snug little sum of $3,000 annually, occupying an elegant mansion. They are not the only victims of mutability of fortune, and we can hardly understand why the superintendent should be denounced for their removal. We were not aware that it was part of the superintendent's duty to preach the gospel to the natives. Dr. Henry, are you really governed by these high, holy, and disinterested motives, or are you actuated by disappointed expectation and the desire to see that in office in the hands of some pliant fool? Alternately amazed and disgusted by the interpretation of his motives, Kendall observed in a letter dated the 16th of November, 1861, he wrote, I found it necessary to make some removal of subordinates upon the reservation who were appointed under the last administration. I was forced to remove a preacher. In the discharge of my duty, I have not stopped to inquire the religious opinions of any man. A howl is raised by the disappointed few as though I had only been known during the eight long years as a most constant consummate rascal and most disreputable character. Meanwhile, at the urging of Anson Henry, James Wilbur left the territory for Washington, D.C. to present his case against Kendall to President Lincoln. Lincoln at one time had written that Dr. Henry was necessary to his existence. He listened to Wilbur with sympathy. After conferring with William Wallace, delegate to Congress from Washington Territory, the President supported the nomination of Calvin H. Hale to replace Kendall. The nomination came to the floor of the Senate on the 23rd of December, but was temporarily blocked by Senator James Naismith, Democratic Senator from Oregon, and David Logan, an influential Oregon Republican. Senator Naismith, however, saw that the end was in sight and on the 30th of December, 1861, wrote to Kendall, I'm afraid you acted indiscreetly in the removal of Wilbur. By March of the next year, the question of Hale's replacing Kendall reached the Senate again, and lengthy documents were submitted by Wallace from all of the Methodist clergy in Oregon and Washington, charging Kendall with the most outrageous conduct. Senator Naismith was unable to delay Hale's appointment, and on the 6th of March, 1862, just short of eight months as Superintendent of Indian Affairs, Kendall was replaced. Not for his want of sagacity or honesty of purpose, but because of his moral unfitness for the supposed philanthropic and Christian work with the Native Americans of Washington Territory. In the words of the triumphant Republican Party, Kendall went to the wall and Father Wilbur returned to the Yakima Reservation. Kendall's reaction to the turmoil had been one of dismay, tempered with candor and false hope. His letters ably demonstrate how ill-prepared he was to cope with frontier politics. In one letter particularly, which was written to Caleb B. Smith, who at the time was Secretary of the Interior, on the 24th of February, 1862, partially reads, It is not alone the office that is involved. My reputation is at stake. My character, however humble may be my walk of life, is yet of some value to me. I do not desire to have it blasted. If there is any department in our government which should not be prostituted to the gratifications of every designing man, it is that of the Indian Bureau. 
In a letter to his friend E. White dated the 19th of March, 1862, Kendall had this to say, I cannot get along with incompetent and drunken agents, and I deem it my duty to report them, though my own head may fall on the discharge of that duty. Another letter, this one from back in November of 1861, again addressed to his friend E. White, Kendall stated, All I ask is that I shall remain long enough to show what I intend to do and what I am capable of doing. Two courses were open to Kendall. He could either return east for an active part in the Civil War, or he could head to Washington, D.C., looking for a political post. He rejected the latter because I feared I could get nothing from Abraham, not even an honorable grade in which to fight the enemies of my country. His finances evidently at a new low. Kendall wrote a letter early in October of 1862 stating, I should have visited the States this summer had my finances justified the risk. He resumed his law practice, once again representing the unpopular Puget Sound Agricultural Company. This is as good a spot as any to end it for now, and next week I will pick up with Benjamin beginning a campaign against his enemies through several newspapers, which will ultimately lead to his demise. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a 5-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Sources for this episode include HistoryLink.org, The History of Washington, Idaho, and Montana by Bancroft, the Overland Press, The Washington Standard, JSTOR.org, The Puget Sound Herald, The Washington Secretary of State's website, The Washington State Historical Society, and The Olympia Historical Society. Thank you for listening to Episode 20, Territorial Politician Benjamin F. Kendall, Part 1. Part 2 will be released next week. A special thank you goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. If you have any questions about the show, please contact historyoftheevergreenstatepod at gmail.com. That email address can also be found in the episode description in addition to the link to Buy Me a Coffee, which offers you, the listener, the opportunity to support the show and to keep it going. One-time and monthly donations will go towards research material to assist me in continuing to put out these episodes. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. Stay safe out there, everyone. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets and on the Hull. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Chimicum and Stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck, the singing Stilliguamish and the swirling Skookum Chuck, and Moclips and Copalis, where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shock on Puget Sound.